Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. Can I help you? The man behind the counter looked surprisingly ordinary. She didn't quite know what she'd expected. Some sort of gangster vibe, perhaps? What a cliché, she chided herself. There was nothing of Robert De Niro or Harvey Keitel about this inoffensive bloke, nor was he a fat, aggro-looking type. He was neither Middle Eastern nor Italian nor Eastern European, as far as she could tell. He was just a sales assistant in the kind of shop she had never thought she would enter. She tugged the collar of her puffer jacket higher around her face and smiled apologetically. I'm just looking, thank you. He raised an eyebrow at her response and she blushed. A gun shop wasn't like the upmarket boutique she was used to and just looking was probably not an acceptable response here. In a boutique, it meant give me time. And that was exactly what she needed, time to absorb her surroundings, to calm down enough to do what she had to do. Jane Caro AM is a Walkley Award-winning columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster and social commentator. Today I'm talking to Jane about her first novel for adults, The Mother. Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Mother has a very surprising opening. An ordinary woman in a puffer jacket enters a gun shop in Wollongong. That really took me by surprise. Good. It was intended to take you by surprise and to make you think, okay, this is no ordinary mother. This is not going to be the kind of thing, a book about the kind of thing we automatically go to when we think of the word mother. And yet weirdly, as you get into the book, I hope this is what the reader finds, it is also about what it really absolutely is to be a mother. And it's also about love or the nature of love, different kinds of love, how we how love changes from infatuation to obsession. But when does love become power? It probably always has an element of power in it. Um, I mean, if you think about the kind of power that a mother has over an infant, for example, it's quite enormous. But also if you talk to any new mother, they'll tell you the infant has got an awful lot of power over them. So I think power is always part of love. And if the love is healthy and more positive than negative, because I don't I don't believe in love that is entirely wonderful, you know, it's always got shades in it. But then that power balance is worked out to some extent and one will sacrifice some of their power for the good of the other, knowing that at a later stage they may be given the same compliment. And I think that's how good relationships, long-lasting relationships probably work themselves out. Not that one always holds the power, one never has any, but that it's kind of a transaction all the way through their lives. And um, one of the couples in my novel, um, Miriam and Pete obviously have had that kind of relationship where they've managed to balance out who has the power and which areas they, and it's worked out well. And whereas and the other couple, um, Miriam's daughter, Alison, and her husband, Nick, no, one 
absolutely has to have all the power. And that is where the essence of the problem lies. Um, but I think, and, and that's the, that is the problem, love can become an excuse for domination. And I am particularly wary of the word protect and protection because I think that that can often really be code for control and controlling. And it sounds benign and it's what women throughout the centuries were really brought up to believe they were looking for, protection. If they thought for a minute about who they had to be protected from um, and yet they were supposed to be protected by someone from that same group, automatically there are questions that should be asked. But it is protection to me that becomes problematic and people who associate love with protection and control and domination, uh, I think are what we're talking about in a lot of the conversations that we're having at the moment about toxic relationships. Let's talk about Alison or Ali, as she's referred to, and she's the daughter to Miriam, the oh. mother in the title of this book. Ali's a smart, independent, well-educated, well-connected, self-motivated woman, Mm-hmm. But she finds herself in an abusive, controlling situation. It's like a puzzle, a puzzle that can't be explained or solved by looking at solely at the nature of love. How can we explain these things? It is the inability to explain them simply that is what is most fascinating about them. And I think one of the things that I felt very strongly when this idea suddenly threw itself into my brain um, was that I needed this to be about how any woman can find herself in this situation, that it is not about a particular group of women who are somehow inadequate in some way or disadvantaged in some way, but that, in fact, it is the nature of the way we approach relationships between men and women, the kind of gender-wide grooming we do of boys and girls from a very early age that creates... um, in a way, a society which can too easily nurture the wrong kind of what we were talking about before, love, which pretends to be love but isn't love because my view my view is women have sought for a very long time and Alison does this and part of the reason she does it is because she and her mother are insecure in their relationship with one another. There is um, Miriam feels terribly guilty that she didn't love this younger daughter Uh, didn't feel as comfortable with her as she did with the older daughter. I mean, she loved her, but she couldn't understand her, couldn't deal with her. They rubbed up against each other. Um, I think this is part of motherhood for all mothers, really. But it can have, and it's not anyone's fault. It's not Miriam's fault. It's not Alison's fault. It's just some human beings are complex. But um, I think that if, if your women are brought up to believe that they need to seek love, that love is love is the reason for their existence, that love is the essence of life and without it nothing is of value. Now, love is incredibly important, but I actually think you're better off seeking respect. And my view is without respect, you can't have love. As a prolific writer of nonfiction, was fiction the natural choice for exploring these issues? It seemed to be for me, but um, I think the nature of fiction is it is to some extent instinctive. So you just get, an, or it happened. This happened to me. I the idea kind of arrived whole, and I felt compelled to um, pursue it. 
I was frightened of it. I thought, oh, this is an area that is very new to me and out of my comfort zone. I could write, I could do the research and write a nonfiction. But I would have felt like a fake writing nonfiction about this because it's, it's not my experience and, you know, lived experience and all of that. But somehow fiction, it gives you permission to go on a journey um, in your, of your imagination and of your gut where you reveal things to yourself that you've never actually consciously thought about either. Um, and uh, indeed, as you interview me, I think, oh, that's interesting. Is that in there? You know, it's so uh, it, it's not like you set out on purpose and I'm not clever enough to do all these layers. It's like there's something deep within you that wants to express this and explore it. And the very fact that it's murky and um, inexplicable and instinctive is why fiction's better because that's what you're writing about. Fiction is about the inexplicable, the murky, the unexplored, the hard to explore, the overlapping, the not easily divided up into um, here are the symptoms, you know, here's the cause, here's the symptoms, here's the, here's the cure, which in a way nonfiction is always to some extent um, involved in. Fiction isn't about that. Fiction is about the messy, confusing and bewildering and dangerous experience of being human. And so... Yes, I think the only way I, um, as a writer, could have explored this was through fiction. Is there ever a danger of the issues, which are substantial, being obscured by the drama? Ah, uh, I would have thought it might be the, the danger might be a little bit more the other way round, that the drama gets obscured by the issues so that, um, you know, it becomes a bit of a polemic rather than an actual novel. I'm a great believer in the fact that to get to people who perhaps never think about whatever the issue is that you're dealing with, story and imaginative explanation, a kind of um, fictional narrative, is often the very best way to open somebody's minds to something that they've never really thought about consciously before because if you involve people emotionally, so a good novel will get your heart pumping it will get you feeling what the um, characters are feeling it will get you going on the same kind of emotional journey as you read the book as they are doing which is when you are really enjoying and really you know absorbed by something that you're reading or watching or whatever and by doing that of course you are changing the way that person will approach that issue from then on because they're having a kind of um, an experience that they're possibly never going to live themselves by proxy, and that's important for opening minds. I believe you very rarely change people's minds with fact. Um, it's important to have facts. It's important to back up belief and issues and things with facts, obviously, but in the end it is emotions that change minds and fiction is um, the vehicle par excellence for dealing with emotions and getting people to feel what you want them to feel. One of the things that's most powerful is um, the obstacle of the law. You really reveal the complexities of the law as a real obstacle to the safety and the well-being of your characters. Do you consider it an obstacle? I think it's, yes, and I think it is considered an obstacle by people who work in the sector and by uh, people who find themselves the victim of this kind of thing. And yet at the same time, that's not as easy as saying, oh, we just change all the laws. 
I mean, I'm actually actually a great believer in innocent till proven guilty. I do understand the complexity of judging people. And I do understand that the law cannot be proactive. Um, It can't assume that an act of violence is going to happen um, because it might not happen. So you can't punish people in advance. Um, And so whatever um, legal tools we use are always going to be imperfect and in a way necessarily imperfect. I mean, the judge is summing up in the court case where um, she says, you know, but Nick hasn't been able to put his side of the story. So we can be as sympathetic as we like to Miriam and Alison and we can believe them and all of that, but we haven't heard. We haven't heard the other person's point of view. I believe as much as I believe everything else. I think one of the things that novels are very good at which nonfiction finds more difficult. Novels are very good at saying to people, there may not be a satisfactory answer to this. There may be a better answer, but there may not be a satisfactory solution. Maybe the solution to this isn't in the law. Maybe the solution to this is in the way we bring up girls and boys, particularly boys. Maybe this responsibility is on us, not on our legal system or even on our police. I'm careful not to demonise any of the authority figures, because I think they're struggling to deal with, you know, generations of systemic acceptance of uh, the lesser status of women and girls and also the belief really that a man is in control of his family, the head of the household, the breadwinner, all that old stuff, even the way we talked about romance, you know, um, the hunt, the chase, as if women are prey and man is the hunter. All of that stuff that we just take and we say, oh, it's trivial, it doesn't matter. The fact that this always fascinates me when I go shopping with my grandchildren, that little girls, if there is, um, you know, you know, animals or anything on their clothing, there are always kittens and rabbits and the occasional unicorn, which doesn't exist. And um, boys, on the other hand, wolves, sharks, dinosaurs, it's lions, it, predators, boys, predators girls pray pray we're doing it without even knowing we're doing it and it's that that causes a situation where women are vulnerable to a man who lives up superficially to that idea of the strong in charge in control got it all together i'll look after you i'll be your knight in shining armor i'll be your prince and rescue you all run 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 from them and The girls see that as something to aspire to, as the sort of man they want. That's a disaster. And the police and the legal system are trying to deal with the consequences of that. We need to change it right back at the beginning. Something I thought might have been symbolic, it's it's the coming and going of the fashion of taking your married name or retaining your your maiden name. Yes. What does it reflect? Is it something archaic that should be dropped in your opinion or is it just a harmless tradition? It's an act of submission and it's a dangerous act. If the first thing you do in a relationship that you want to last your life is an act of submission, you are making a statement about where you place yourself in that relationship and it's on a lower rung. And we are reading messages all the time. We may not even be consciously aware that we're reading them. And we're sending and receiving all these messages we're not conscious of. And that starts to make the character of the relationship. And so the fact that Miriam does not give up her name and Alison does is 
in the context of the novel, and I would say in real life, important. It matters. And where would you I, like this book to be read? I would love, well, hey, I want everyone to read it. I wrote it. But, <laughs> but um, I would really like men to read it. I find it's, it's, a, it's very indicative of still the bedrock lack of respect that a lot of men unconsciously have for women. I, they, they don't mean to have it, but they have been, it's been groomed in them too. I mean, I'm not saying it's their fault or they're wicked for it. It's the way we were all brought up. But um, I'll often, even with a nonfiction book like Accidental Feminist, for example, um, men will come up at, and I'll sign it and say, oh, it's for my mother or my wife or my daughter. And I always gently say, you know, you could read it too. Oh, 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 yeah, oh, oh yeah. Um, it's as if if it's about women, then it's not relevant to me. And yet, and we know that men don't read female authors very often. Women do. Women read male authors all the time. You know, we're, we're, we're um, fine with that. So I would like a lot of men to read this. I suspect a lot of them won't, but I would like them to. But I can't, I can't, I don't want to pander to them. I don't want to start writing fiction to attract the guys. That wouldn't feel true to me. And also, that's not the point. We don't want to make fiction written by women, less attractive to women and more attractive to men. We're just cutting the women readers out. What we want is men who read books to actually be more open-minded and to push themselves out of their comfort zone and try reading more female authors about female subjects. And I think they might find, A, they enjoy them, and, B, they learn quite a lot and that they're not under attack. I've been talking to Jane Caro about her new book, The Mother, it's published by Alan and Unwin and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.